0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week we speak with Ahmad Abu Ertama, a Gaza-based journalist and author, and one of the organizers of the Gaza's Great March of Return, as well as historian Jihad Abu Salim, who is also staff member of the American Service Friends Committee about the Great March and the impacts of Israel's decade-long blockade of the Gaza Strip. Later in the program, Dr. Persis Karim, the director of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University, joins us to talk about the center's upcoming two-day conference marking the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution. Stay with us. Last year, on March 30th, Palestinians launched the Great March of Return to demand an end to the decade-long and inhumane and illegal Israel's blockade of the Gaza Strip and the return of Palestinian refugees to their homes. In the past year, more than 250 unarmed Palestinians have been killed in the weekly protests and tens of thousands have been injured and maimed by Israeli occupation forces. To mark its first anniversary, on March 30th, Palestinians are calling for another mass mobilization at the border with Israel. Vomino producer Mira Nabulsi spoke with Ahmad Abu Ertema, a Gaza-based journalist and author, and one of the main organizers of the Gaza's Great March of Return, as well as Jihad Abu Salim, staff member of the American Friends Service Committee in Chicago, about the genesis of the mass mobilization in Gaza and the devastating consequences of the Israeli-imposed siege on Palestinians who live there.
1: I wanted us to talk about the very beginnings of the idea of the Great March of Return. Since it was first an idea or maybe a dream of yours, I know you have personally suffered from the separation created by the pseudo borders that Israel drew in Rafah. So I wanted us to talk about that. What triggered the idea in the very beginning? What was the personal motivation as well?
2: Yeah, the Great March of Return started as a dream. I personally, like my people, all my people, we dream to be free, to have our freedom to move, to have our human rights. Gaza is a real prison. Gaza just 141 square miles. You can see from the, the same point, if you were on the 10th floor, you can see the West limit, the sea with Israeli warships, which prevents anyone to uh, get out or to come in. And from the same point, you can see the east fence, which is closed. The majority of the Palestinians in Gaza are deprived from their movement, their freedom. They never left Gaza in all their lives. Seventy percent from the Palestinians in Gaza are refugees. So the people in Gaza are suffering so much because of the expulsion, then because of the occupation, then because of the siege, the blockade. The March of Return, its idea was a scream for life, a knock on the doors of the prison. When I wrote my first post on January 7th, uh, year 2018, I said, we want life. We want nothing but life. We are here inside Gaza. We are dying slowly and silently. So enough for this. Let us try. Let us knock the doors of the prison. People responded at this invitation because no choice. It's the normal right for anyone to, to get his freedom, to feel his dignity, to get his basic human rights. Unfortunately, Israeli occupation soldiers use the lethal violence against these unarmed people, unarmed protesters. They killed until now more than 260 unarmed protesters. And until now they uh, wounded more than 25,000 of these unarmed uh, protesters. But what people inside Gaza can make, they have no choice but to continue. To scream, to say to the world, we want life. Enough for this slow and silent death.
1: And I know you have a personal story with Rafah. Yeah. And how Rafah was divided. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners?
2: Rafah was one city. Then in 1982, Israeli government divided it between Egyptian Rafah and Palestinian Rafah. Mm -hmm. The barbed fence, they put it across the same house, the one house and the one land. So a lot of families, thousands of families, uh, were separated because of this fence. Mm. One of these families was my family. Mm -hmm. I was born after two years from this division in 1984. I was born in Egyptian Rafah. Mm. My mother's family lived And uh, my father lived in Palestinian Rafah. So uh, my father and my mother divorced Mm -hmm. in that year. Then uh, after I was born, I moved to Palestinian Rafah and I lived with my father. Mm -hmm. The house of my mother was just uh, maybe uh, 150 meters Mm -hmm. far uh, from me. But I cannot be able to arrive it for 19 years. Mm. The first time I arrived to the house of my mother was in 2005 when the Israeli army pulled out from Gaza. Then the borders opened just mm. for three days. And in that three days, I arrived to my mother.
1: You were starting to describe what people see if they get on the 10th floor of a building in terms of the borders and how Gaza is a small, very small piece of land. I wanted you to describe a little bit how the border looks like and where people protest as part of the Great March of Return, Uh, kind of the geography of it. People are basically protesting on different sites along the border. Can you give an idea of what that looks like?
2: The fence separate between the Palestinians inside Gaza and between their towns and villages uh, where they were expelled in 1948. This is why the Palestinians inside Gaza feel desire to share in these protests. When they shared, they can see their villages. They destroyed villages beyond the fence. There are uh, five uh, spots uh, alongside the fence from Rafah to Beit Hanun in the north. Then the protesters collect every Friday and they protest there peacefully. No threat against the Israeli uh, soldiers. And they practice some activities, social, cultural, songs, to keep the idea of the return in their hearts and in the hearts of the the new generation. Mm -hmm. Israeli soldiers, Israeli snipers, usually use the violence against these protesters, not because they feel they are under threat, but for political reasons, because Israel doesn't want from the Palestinians to r- remind the world about the major problem, about the major question. The March of Return remembers the world that there are refugees. And these refugees, since 70 years, they are still struggling for their right to return. And it's it's their normal right. And it's It's achievable, right? It's not just a theoretical uh, question. It's achievable, right? Why? Because 85% from the lands of these refugees inside what is now Israel is still until now empty Mm -hmm. or with low density. So they can return. They can return. But why Israel prevent them? Israel prevent them for racial reasons because they are not Jewish, and this is the problem. We believe in equality, we believe in justice, we believe in citizenship. We want democratic country where all the people, Israelis and Palestinians, can live peacefully, can live with equal rights. We understand the right of the Israelis to live peacefully and to live in safe, but simply don't solve your problem or don't solve your disaster by creating another Another one.
1: one. So we have talked a little bit about why the march was triggered. Jihad, I wanted you to talk about the political context in which the march came about. You have written before about this, and you uh, describe that as the genesis of the Great March of Return. Can you explain kind of the political climate that gave birth to the march.
3: Yes. The Great March of Return unfolded in a political context where a new generation of Palestinians, young Palestinians, wanted to think and exercise their politicization outside of the existing boxes of Palestinian factional politics in light of a divided Palestinian body politic. But also, it came in a moment where Palestinians have been feeling an existential threat as a result of, one, the ascendancy of Trump into power in the U.S., and what that meant for Palestinian rights and the future of the Palestinian cause. As Trump was establishing his administration and as his policies towards Palestine and Israel were taking shape, we saw a total dismissal of Palestinian rights. We saw an assault on the Palestinian refugee question and on the right of return. We saw a drive towards depoliticizing the the Palestinian issue. In Uh,
1: fact, we see that all the time with Gaza. It's always discussed as a humanitarian issue. For
3: sure. Uh, But for Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere, there are two major issues that I think you know they they are at the heart of our thinking and and they define our struggle and I think the refugees issue in Jerusalem because of the symbolism and and what both issues mean to us so moving the embassy was the catalyst that started and accelerated the conversation in Gaza and beyond about what is to be done what we as Palestinians, as young Palestinians, can we do to tell the international community and to tell the Trump administration that their attempts to basically bury our cause will not succeed. The Great March of Return also happened in a context where just one year after Palestinians in Jerusalem led a mass popular mobilization protest uh, against the installation of metal detectors outside of Al-Haram Sharif, the Aqsa Mosque. And for Palestinians in Gaza who were watching how the power of the people was capable of actually defeating Israeli policies, that stirred a conversation on social media. Social media is the major platform now where young Palestinians like Ahmed are engaging in this conversation about what action needs to be done. They talk about the political, the major political issues and events. And before that, in 2011, there was actually an attempt to march for return, not only from Gaza, but also from almost all Arab countries that surround Palestine and also from Gaza and the West Bank. The idea of implementing... Palestinians have the right to return. It's already there in international resolutions. Mm -hmm. The idea of implementing return, that right, of actualizing it, has also reverberated throughout Palestinian history. I mean, after 1948, Palestinian refugees did actually try to return, and they were met by lethal force. And throughout... Throughout Palestinian history ever since, there has been a conversation about when do we return, how do we return. So what happened in the March of Return was basically an attempt to implement that right, to go home, to basically march home. 2011 was also a catalyst because... That was the year where the revolutions and uprisings of Arab people took place, uh, the moment that we know as the Arab Spring. And for Palestinians, the fences that separate them from their lands are their Tahrir squares. Yes, we are struggling against our, we have a corrupt leadership and so on. But the major problem that we're dealing with is that we are subject to a settler colonial Uh, regime that does not recognize our rights and that exercises erasure systematically against us. So the fence east of Gaza, the fence that separates Palestinians in Lebanon, for example, the refugees from going back home, is the symbol, is the daily reminder of the Nakba, the catastrophe that befell Palestinians in 1948. So a combination of factors, regional, uh, international, and local, help start the march and play the major role if there is in it unfolding.
1: And I want to go back to something that you both touched on, which is basically people organizing and getting together. Mm. And for many young people not having that chance under the leadership of Hamas and in the West Bank under the leadership of uh, Fatah. If people paid close attention, they would notice the amazing community power that happened part of the Great March of Return. People put up tents, they organize cultural activities, uh, reading circles, all sort of activities that show us basically that the march has become a space full political and cultural expression. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because that's not highlighted as much in mm-hmm. international media coverage. And I wanted to talk about how much people felt the need for that type of political practice. I don't know if you want to say something, Jihad, and then Ahmed from the ground, kind of also what you saw.
3: Let's say one thing about international media coverage when it comes to popular action in Palestine. There has been a lack of recognition and acknowledgement of people's agency on the ground. Generally, people's action is generally portrayed as by the media, which I don't really like to repeat Their framing, but just to help our audience understand that Palestinians are not Asians, they they don't own their destiny, they're pawns of this or that faction. The fact on the ground in Gaza and in Jerusalem, and also in similar movements that are taking place in the West Bank or inside Israel, for example, people organizing against demolitions in the Negev or in the Naqab or uh, against the nation state law. There are movements that organize on a grassroots level there are movements in almost all the corners of Palestinian existence in the homeland and in the diaspora where young Palestinians are taking their destiny into their own hands and organizing and trying to challenge the many obstacles that stand in their way there is the obstacle of occupation which causes real physical fragmentation of Palestinian existence where people from Gaza never get to meet people from the West Bank ahmed just got to meet Iyad Burnat who's a leader in the Bela'in protest movement Mm -hmm. for example, only in Chicago just a few days ago. Although they live two hours, I think, apart in Palestine. But those leaders, those organizers, they don't get to meet and talk and dream of and think about their political action and the future. So on the ground, you have these various manifestations of people's power, of how communities want to emphasize their identity and their presence and want to challenge the obstacles. The occupation is an obstacle, but also the Palestinian political division, Mm -hmm. the patriarchal leaderships that we have that really don't recognize and acknowledge the power of the people. But despite that, it's impressive that in Gaza, after 11 years of blockade, where people have four hours of electricity, after three major military operations that cause so much destruction of all aspects of life, uh, you have... 20-year-old people who march to the fence and talk about a peaceful, non-violent protest, who talk about the right of return. To be 20-year-old in Gaza today means that you were 10 years old when the blockade started. Mm-hmm. This reflects a very interesting and thriving conversation that is happening on the grassroots level where you have organizers like Ahmed who learned from the experiences of those who came before them and also who engage the the public. And thanks to social media, such conversations have become more accessible and easier to do today in Palestine.
1: Ahmed, do you want to add something?
2: The March of Return was an opportunity for the civil society inside Gaza to express themselves. Maybe this is the advantage of the March of Return. It was a choice of a national unity, not just a choice for one a political faction. Now, in the March of Return, we see the youth, we see the women, we see the artists, we see the NGOs, we see the people who believe in new ideas, not mm-hmm. the traditional, factional ideas. This opportunity allows them to express themselves. The March of Return gives the people opportunity to serve their cause by his creative way. So it shows a picture of the people not just the picture of one group, but all the people. And I think this is one of the important things that the March of return represent, Because in, in this kind of nonviolent methods, everyone, regardless mm-hmm. of his ideas, his political uh, thoughts, he can find his place.
1: I guess related to that, Um, what's mind-boggling watching this from far away is how do you organize thousands and even sometimes hundreds of thousands of people?
2: The March of Return wasn't a personal choice. It's the choice of all people. So uh, when I wrote this idea, I just suggest an idea. Mm. I just sparked this idea, then hundreds of people write about it and then they become thousands. All of them believe in this idea and believe in this kind of struggle. I think that the general conditions, the political conditions help this idea Mm -hmm. because this is the only choice for the people inside Gaza. So we cannot say that there is one leader or one organizer but there are a lot of people believe in this idea and everyone work by his own uh, method.
1: And we are talking with Ahmed Abur Tema, journalist, author and organizer. He's the brain behind the Great March of Return in Gaza, Palestine, and Jihad Abu Salim, staff member of the American Friends Service Committee in Chicago. Jihad is also a historian working on his Ph.D. at NYU. So, Jihad, you were talking about the Great March of Return being not the first time Palestinians organized themselves to march towards the borders. But this is the first time the march lasts for a whole year. Hmm. Did you expect it's going to continue for this long? I didn't
2: expect uh, exactly how the situation will work. But in general, I expect that the people will choose this uh, choice and they will continue in this choice because, at first, this is their right. And the normal situation that the people under pressure, under occupation, under blockade, they try to break this situation. Imagine when you put a man inside the room, then driven medicine and food from him how can we expect he will do of course he he will knock the door he will try to break this blockade Mm -hmm. so this is the normal thing exactly this is the situation in gaza the people in gaza 2.2 million citizens inside gaza they are under blockade Uh, this area is unlivable according to the united nations gaza strip is unlivable just next year Mm -hmm, 2020. 2020 so what can we expect from these people to still silent if they still silent this means that more deaths more suffering more unhuman conditions so as the conditions that create the march of return don't change then we expect this people will continue in mm-hmm. this choice. And here we can say about the role of the Palestinians and supporters outside. The people inside Gaza with a lot of advocacy and a lot of support from all the people who struggle for freedom and who, who struggle for human rights across the world.
1: And last week, the UN released a report in which it said that Israel may have committed war crimes in Gaza, and they asked that people or that individuals involved are held responsible. In fact, they said individually and collectively should be held accountable for the death of 189 Palestinians. This covered only the period between March and December, so it didn't cover these three months or now. We're entering almost a year since the beginning of the march. Ahmed, you and the organizers wanted this to be a peaceful protest, and you talked about that. Unfortunately, it turned pretty bloody for people. There's a high human cost for this march. This report, I don't know if you had the chance to follow. I know you've been traveling. But did you have the chance to hear the news about this UN report? Yeah. And how do you think you could build on that?
2: Yeah, I read about this report because mm-hmm. because they invited me and mm-hmm. I, I give my testimony in this uh, report. This is important report and it confirms what we all know before that Israel commit crimes against humanity. And this is important report. But the next step we wait that we should feel Israel that it's under accountable. Israel feel impunity. And as they uh, still feel impunity, this means more crimes, more victims, more suffering for Palestinian people. So we demand the world, we demand the international community, we demand the people who love justice, who love dignity, who who believe in human rights for all, all people. We demand them to do something mm-hmm. uh, to 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 make Israel feel that they can find they will find the consequences of their crimes. Mm-hmm. I think Israel ignored the international will because until now, unfortunately, Israel didn't pay the price of its crimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should send a strong message all the world should uh, uh, send a strong message for Israel. That you cannot make a crimes and practice siege blockade, killing incubation, expulsion forever.
3: I would like to add just one more thing. Mm what israel has has been committing against the protesters in the gaza strip cannot be separated from the larger scene in the in the middle east and north africa today mm-hmm. where you have counter revolutionary regimes that are assaulting people's movements the major threat to dictatorships to to occupiers to despots to tyrants today in the in the region in general are people's movements whether be them demand movements for freedom and equality within people's countries or movements against occupation and settler colonialism so by killing by shooting down peaceful protesters uh, Israel was sending the same message uh, Bashar al-Assad sent to the people of Syria when when he killed peaceful protesters, the same message that the Sisi regime sends when he killed peaceful protesters in, in Rabah and so on, the same message that the Saudis and the Emiratis have been sending Yemenis when they drop bombs on their heads. It's a reality where those regimes, these dictatorships, those occupiers, are pretty terrified of people's movements. Mm. They see a threat in them. So they, tr- they think that by using excessive violence, by using such uh, levels of discipline, that they could actually abort people's movements. But if we look around today, this excessive use of violence did not really deter the Sudanese people from protesting against their dictator al-Bashir or people in Algeria who are protesting. So I think the Great March of Return also came at a moment to renew people's faith in the power of, of mass popular mobilization and peaceful protest.
1: Have things improved at all as a result of the march, in your opinion? Do you think the march achieved its goals?
2: Our struggle is, is long because mm. we struggle for our freedom. We struggle for uh, our return to our homes. We struggle for our dignity. And the march of return as a violent method can achieve something but its goals will be achieved by accumulation uh, What we want now, we want to continue in this choice because we haven't other choices. Mm. The other choice to accept the reality of our death, to accept the, re- the reality of a living under incubation, under siege, with hard conditions, with unhuman conditions. So this is our only choice. And we want to strengthen the international solidarity movement. I know there are a lot of people, they believe in dignity, they believe in freedom, they believe in justice for all people. This is our united struggle. It's one struggle for me in Mm -hmm. Gaza and for you in, in United States and for you in Europe and for you in Africa. All of us share the same struggle. We hope this international solidarity movement strengthened more and more. And we can all together, we can make pressure against the governments, governments which pay for Israel. This money go to Israel means more bullets. The governments support Israel by it means uh, more stealing for the lands, more settlement, more occupation. So I think it's our united struggle. Let us make our voice louder that this money, the money of taxpayers, should directed to the education, not to the occupation, mm. to the healing, not to the killing.
1: And Jihad, on that, do you... Being in the U.S., you've been living in the U.S. A few years. What, in your opinion, do you feel like the response in the international community and in the U.S. here has been perhaps comparable or equal to the sacrifice of the Palestinian people, the people in Gaza?
3: While honoring the the great work of many people who try to raise awareness on what's happening in Gaza and actually shift and change U.S. policy, I would say that, unfortunately, it's not enough what's being done. Ever since I stepped foot in this country, my quest has been to help change the conversation. Unfortunately, Gaza receives coverage only in the seasons of bombardment and what Israeli security establishment calls mowing the lawn in reference to the operations that they launch every two or three years against Gaza in which thousands of people die and lose their homes and lives. But that's why we're here today. You know, that's why I joined the American Friends Service Committee in uh, just last year, and my experience working for AFSC and with the AFSC colleagues has been defined with the unfolding of the Great March of Return. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking this opportunity and using this privilege that I have as a Palestinian from Gaza who lives in the U.S. to help change the conversation and help shift policy. The campaign we have, Gaza Unlocked, which part of that campaign we were successful to invite Ahmed and bring him here to the U.S. The goal of Ahmed's presence here is, which we are honored by having him, is to expand the conversation, is to bring the conversation that is happening in Gaza to the U.S. to friends and foes so that they can listen, open their hearts and minds, and be part of this conversation. And also for us to help break the siege. The siege on Gaza is not only a physical one. The blockade is also a psychological blockade that chases you. I mean, I have been living in the U.S. for five years. My family is still in Gaza, and I haven't been able to see them. They haven't been able to leave and come meet me. So it's been a really, really sad experience. But what's making me optimistic is the growing interest on the part of people in learning more and taking action. So, for example, you know, as part of the Gaza Unlocked campaign, we have been able to reach many audiences in the US, talk to people, talk to elected representatives and raise awareness on the blockade and on the history that led to Gaza's current predicament as part of mm-hmm. the broader predicament of the Palestinian people. So Gaza Unlocked, if I invite our listeners, to check the website mm-hmm. of the campaign, it aims at doing two things. Number one, raise awareness. There is never shortage on education on Gaza. There's uh,
1: plenty of resources online, a lot more than any time, I think.
3: Yeah, but at the same time, there is plenty of ignorance out there, which I don't think it's malicious, just people don't know for most part. And I think it's, it's part of people's responsibility in this country to know, not because there is a moral element to it, mm-hmm. but also because Because of the responsibility Americans share and have responsibility because their government supports Israel. I, as a Palestinian, my family, my younger siblings, every day when they suffer under the violence of the blockade and war, their reality is a product of this alliance between the U.S. and Israel and of the U.S. bias to Israel. So I think, and this takes us back to what Gaza Unlocked is about. Gaza Unlocked aims to, one, raise awareness and educate people about what's going on and also invite people to have a sense of urgency regarding the situation. Everything in Gaza is collapsing. Mm-hmm. These are not words, this is real concrete suffering and pain that has been affecting children and women and elderly and everybody who live there. The second component of our campaign is to help shift policy. So we not only educate people, we actually educate people and build friendships and connections, hoping that together as Americans, as Palestinians in the U.S., as people of color, as people who care progressives that we would call upon the U.S. government, call upon our elected representatives to put an end to the blockade and to raise the important political questions such as the future of Palestinian refugees, uh, the issue that no one wants to talk about Mm -hmm. as part of the internationally imposed peace process. So, for example, one of the things we did in Gaza Unlocked, we have this... Small initiative, an easy thing to do that people can do in order to raise the awareness of their elected representatives and call upon them to end the blockade. So, if people text this number 91990, if they send a text to this number 91990 and write Gaza in the text, they will receive a response Mm -hmm. from AFSC with a link where they can reach their members of Congress and call upon them to help end the blockade.
1: Mm -hmm. I know you have also testimonies and stories from people in Gaza.
3: Yeah, Gaza Unlocked highlights the, the personal stories, because, you know, we're talked about as numbers. You hear that this percentage of people in Gaza are unemployed. This uh, number of people were killed in these operations. But these numbers, when they don't give a name, when they don't give an image, Mm -hmm. sometimes they pass unnoticed. What we're trying to do, we're trying to highlight the personal experiences of people who are living under blockade. What does it mean for a young woman growing up in Gaza, like my sister, who's 17 years old, to actually experience three major operations in the past 10 years, people her age, when they write, for example, their Instagram bio, they try to write cool things. I was shocked the other day to read that my sister wrote on her Instagram bio that I am Hala, I'm, I'm 17 years old, and I survived three wars. These are the experiences that define people's experiences living and growing up in Gaza. And this isn't a healthy environment for them. What, What we're trying to do, we're trying to change this. And it's imperative, it's important, and it's urgent. Like Ahmed said, according to the UN report that was, by the way, issued in 2012, Gaza will be unlivable in 2020 and according to many international NGOs, the threshold of unlivability has already passed, Mm -hmm. given that we have four hours of electricity there and that 70% of people are unemployed their salaries are being cut and cancer patients are dying at the border. So I invite your listeners to take a minute and think about this tragedy that is happening and and, and try to help us end the blockade and and help the people of Gaza. Mm,
1: And this year marked 10 years since the major offensive known as Operation Cast in mm-hmm. two thousand, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. After that, there were two more major offenses yeah. that you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I want us to talk a little bit about how people don't have the chance to even recover from one war and they're, then they're hit by another. This also context of siege that has continued. How did we get here?
3: Since 1948, the area that would become the Gaza Strip has been under immense pressure and and pain. The Gaza Strip as a region was a product of the 1948 war and and a consequence of it. Before 1948, there was no such a thing as a Gaza Strip. We had the Gaza District, which was one of the biggest administrative territories in Mandate Palestine. And then suddenly overnight, because of the war, the size of the district shrunk into the 141 square miles that we have today. And hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees from surrounding areas in the territory that would become the state of Israel, fled violence and were expelled by force to what would become the Gaza Strip. So since its birth as a territory, the Gaza Strip has been defined by high population density, a mass presence of refugees, and lack of resources because it's a very small territory that cannot afford enough resources for its population to prosper and thrive, and also because of the sense of, of refugehood. You know, you have people who are just waiting to go home. So since 1948, the Gaza Strip has become a stage for pain and suffering suffering as a result of that. And then come 1967, when Israel militarily occupied the Gaza Strip and to add insult to injury, Israeli authorities would allow Jewish settlers to actually build settlements on one third of that already small Mm -hmm. and impoverished area. So you have from 1967 until 2005, almost 8,000 refugees lived on one third of the strip while the remaining areas included Palestinian refugees and Palestinians who are already from the Gaza area. And then since 1967, what Professor Sarah Roy at Harvard described as a process of de-development has unfolded in Gaza. And that means turning the population into cheap labor that was the only responding to the needs of the Israeli labor market, creating a gap between those people who are descendants of farmers and peasants who became, you know, cheap workers in Israel. And then come the first intifada where people in Gaza wanted to bring to the forefront the political aspect of the cause. As a result of the first intifada, Israel started the awful legacy of its closure policies so the policy of the blockade go back to the early 90s when In order to uh, collectively punish Palestinians in Gaza for joining in the first uprising, the first intifada, Israeli authorities would impose closures that actually were described in New York Times headlines from the early 90s as siege. So you have this policy that unfolded then, and then comes Oslo with its illusions. Um, During the second intifada, things also didn't improve, and the blockade as we know it today came to being when the international community decided they're not going to like the results of our democratic elections in 2006 and then imposed an all out blockade in 2007. In 2007, I remember I was talking to my father and I asked him, how long do you think the blockade will last? And he said, maybe three months, five months maximum. And I just reminded him today that it's been 11 years. The logic of the blockade is to bring people in Palestine to their knees. It didn't work. That it's a policy that proved wrong, even if we look at it as a policy. And now what Israel has been doing is basically maintaining the status quo because they don't want to deal with the real questions that concern Gaza. So they maintain the status quo. They maintain the blockade. They count the calories to prevent, you know, a mass starvation. starvation. But at, but at the same time, they, they prevent Gaza from rising, from becoming the thriving economy and agricultural place it used to be before all of these strategies befell the people there.
0: Ahmad Abu Ertama is a Gaza-based journalist and author and one of the main organizers of the Gaza's great march of return. Jihad Abu Salim is a historian and a staff member of the American Friends Service Committee in Chicago. They spoke with Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Zazan. On March 29th, the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University will bring together academics, researchers, artists, and filmmakers from seven countries for a two-day conference titled 40 Years and More, International Conference on Iranian Diaspora Studies. The conference will mark the anniversary of the 1979 Iranian Revolution by understanding the ways, that Iranians as exiles, immigrants, and as second and third generation hyphenated citizens of their respective nations have met with both challenges and opportunities of diaspora experience. I spoke with Dr. Persis Karim about the Centers for Iranian Diaspora Studies and the significance of recognizing and understanding the Iranian diaspora. Dr. Persis Karim holds the Nedon Nobody Endowed Chair and is the Director of the newly established Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. She is also a professor in the Department of Comparative Literature.
4: We're fortunate enough to live in the Bay Area where there's a you know, pretty significant concentration of Iranian immigrants, second-generation Iranian-Americans and that we have, in a sense, reached a sort of apex in that community, in that we're much more visible. We are involved in various activities, both professionally, culturally, and so this is an ideal place for the genesis of this center. Neda Nobari, who's a philanthropist who came through San Francisco State University as an undergraduate, I think about three and a half decades ago when she left her professional life with BB clothing, wanted to do philanthropic work, and she established a foundation that has been giving to artists, filmmakers, cultural workers across the cultural spectrum of the U.S. And she saw fit to endow a position and a center here that focused on the Iranian diaspora, and I think her vision is really unique in that she wanted to do something a little different there have been a proliferation of Iranian studies programs across campuses in the United States focusing primarily on you know classical Persian studies literature and history and the ancient and perhaps more modern history of Iran but no one has in a sense saw fit to endow a position where the study of diasporas of Iran have basically taken hold in countries across the globe. It's something that's dear to my heart, of course. I got started doing it with literature, trying to emphasize the voices and experiences of Iranians in the diaspora when I was in graduate school. So when this position became available, of course, I applied for it, and I think I had this unique perspective of having been involved in this field in the United States, and specifically in California, in the Bay Area. So that's really the sort of marriage of two happy coincidences, me having been doing this work, and her having the idea that it was time to really focus not solely on Iran, but to focus on the the present and the future of people who are living outside of Iran, who connect to Iran and Iranian heritage, but perhaps are really much more of a, an amalgam of their experiences outside of the Iranian nation. And I think that there's a maturation of the field of Iranian diaspora studies. There are lots of really brilliant young scholars who are doing this, who have in a sense come after me, but are, have really pushed the field much further along.
0: I have noticed, again, this is um, just my observation, that much of the work and focus has been on the second and third generation of Iranians, but millions of Iranians left in the aftermath of the revolution because of political and later because of economic reasons, and many have lived in exile for decades, and many of them are getting old and some have passed away, unfortunately. How do you look at the whole question of what is and who should be included in the diaspora studies?
4: I absolutely agree with you that, in a way, that first generation, and in particular the people who have been um, caught in the politics of post-1979 and in the politics of US-Iran relations, have been overlooked. And in fact, they're they're the hinge, I think, For all the subsequent generations. So, one of the things that I'm really interested in is trying to capture that first wave of immigration and diaspora, which I think precedes 1979. Um, And so, two of the projects that I'm currently preoccupied with and that I see as really important aspects of doing the public history of Iranians in a place like the United States is to emphasize those earlier histories and those perhaps unnarrativized histories so i'm working on a documentary film right now called we are here we've always been here in which i actually trying to feature many of those earlier immigrants who perhaps came here in the 60s and 70s for higher education became very politicized by the social movements that were taking place the civil rights movement the struggle for ethnic and cultural studies in higher education, solidarity with black and Latino communities, and to capture those stories and the ways in which they were transformed by their experience of being in the U.S. and made them connect back to Iran, for example, in the student movements of the 60s and 70s. So it's the Confederation of Iranian Students. So in the documentary film, I'm interviewing, I'm sure you know, Paravi Shokat, mm-hmm. who's a very important person in our Bay Area community, one of the older ones. And the idea that we have to capture those histories because they will be lost if we don't. And also, they're part of the history of immigration, but they're also part of the history of Iran. And so that's a unique, a unique moment to really document this is that we can learn a lot about how the u.s. influenced these younger people when they first came and how that was transformed into social movements that impacted the history of iran
0: and also um, many people who left iran to avoid political persecutions or some of them who spent years in jail and they ended up in the u.s specifically some of them we have them in the bay area they have never been part of this conversation
4: i think one of the things that we're seeing is that we're at the very beginning of a disciplinary shift mm-hmm. away from the focus on iran and a recognition that to understand iranian history we can also learn a great deal from the stories of individuals and the collective stories of communities that left Iran for various reasons because of perhaps political persecution, economic reasons. And that, for me, the the notion of the diaspora Hmm. is much more expansive than either one discipline or one moment in time. So think of me as somebody who claims being part of the Iranian diaspora, my father came in 1946, and he came as a result of the occupation of Iran by British and Soviet troops during World War II. He was very influenced by what he saw there, and he ended up coming here by accident. But that same idea that larger historical events influences the way a person decides to immigrate or to take root in another community or culture is a very important part of thinking about diaspora, not solely as a cultural phenomenon, but also as a historical phenomenon. And that's one of the things I really am excited about, that a lot of the research that's coming out by younger scholars is very deeply rooted in an awareness of histories, imperial histories, local histories, national histories. So, for example, one of the panels at the conference is by a generation of young people who were influenced by their parents, who were in, deeply engaged in the social movements of Iran and had to leave Iran for political reasons, or who engaged with solidarity with Iranians inside of Iran prior to 1979. So for me, the opportunity to expand our definition of diaspora is really now, right, that we have enough critical study, and we also have enough young people who understand that it's not just an ethnic identity. It's not just a cultural phenomenon. It's also an attention to the historical. Mm-hmm.
0: Give us an overview of what is going to be taking place on March 29th, and 30th?
4: Well, the conference opens technically on March 28th at the San Francisco Art Commission Gallery, where there currently is an art exhibit by four Iranian diaspora artists curated by Bay Area artist and curator Taraneh Hemami. That is an opportunity to show this art exhibit that has been up since January. And at that opening, Supervisor Asha Safai's office we will read a proclamation designating March Iranian Diaspora Month because we have so many activities happening in the month of March, obviously because of Nowruz, the Persian New Year, but also because of this conference and several art exhibitions and galleries that have featured Iranian diaspora artists, meaning people whose work is really situated now in this context, mm. even though they might be drawing on Iranian themes. So we open on March 28th with a reception at the San Francisco Arts Commission Gallery and then on the 29th and 30th at San Francisco State at the Seven Hills Conference Center. We have two packed days of panels. The first day, Friday, is kind of more focused around scholarship in the disciplines of the humanities, sociology, anthropology. We end the day with an excerpt of a one-woman play called Together Tea, And then on Saturday, we open the conference again in the morning at 9 o'clock. And Saturday is um, more focused on the sort of arts focus. So we have a panel of filmmakers. We have a panel of artists who are participating in the art show called Once at Present at the Minnesota Street Gallery, which we are sponsoring that exhibition of 19 Bay Area Iranian diaspora artists. And that is the closing of the conference on March 30th, and it will feature a fashion show by Bay Area fashion designer and artist Hushidar Mortezavit. Very interesting guy, Um, and deeply rooted in the Bay Area, and also draws on his father's two-day background and engages with the sort of politics of queerness and also critique of capitalism and consumptive societies. And so he's doing a fashion show, and then we close the reception with a short performance by Mosen Namju, who's now based in Brooklyn, New York, um, a singer of great acclaim, singer, songwriter, poet of great acclaim, who's going to sing for us at the reception on March 30th.
0: So before we end, give us the website and where people can go to get more information about the conference and about... Future events at the center.
4: Okay, so the center is the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies. If you want to register for the conference, the website is cids.sfsu.edu/conference. The website in general is All of that, minus the conference, cids.sfsu.edu. There you can find out more information about the projects we're involved with, regular programming. We also have a blog called With a Trace, where we're featuring blog posts about individuals who are participating in the conference. But it's something I hope to do beyond the conference to showcase the kinds of work that people are doing across the disciplines. And in communities. So the other endeavor that I want to really emphasize is to build projects that are not just within a university setting, but also draw on the support and interest of people in the community. And I think that's where we really have a lot of work to do, is to sort of understand that these are not just academic projects, they're projects to support the flourishing of communities in a time when we're under attack by the rhetoric of this current administration. And you can learn more about the art exhibits also at the same site. Our Facebook is Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies. We also have a, a nice Instagram account. We're featuring something called 40 Stories, both on our YouTube channel and our Instagram site where they're short interviews with people who are in all walks of life doing interesting things. And we also have an Instagram account called This Iranian American Life where we try to showcase the ordinary and the extraordinary and to humanize, you know, Iranians in a time when we're often conflated with these rather villainous ideas about the Middle East in general and in Iran particular.
0: We will also share this information on our Twitter at momina underscore radio. Dr. Persis Karim is the director of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. She is also a professor in the Department of Comparative Literature.
3: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina Radio at Gmail.